Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au. Welcome to this special episode of Upfront about breast cancer, where we're taking a deep dive and I hope a deep breath into the impact that COVID-19 pandemic has had on treatment for breast cancer. And we will unpack the challenges that we as a sector need to work on for 2021. My name is Kirsten Pilati and joining me in this episode is Professor Dorothy Keefe, CEO of Cancer Australia and medical oncologist. Dorothy has led and continues to lead a distinguished career focused on improving outcomes for cancer patients. A reminder that this episode of Upfront about breast cancer is unscripted conversation with our guests. The topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice, nor necessarily represent the full spectrum of the experiences or clinical opinion. Welcome to Upfront about breast cancer, Dorothy. Thank you, Kirsten. It's lovely to be here. Now, I know um, we know each other well, so you are allowed to call me KP in um, in this uh, discussion today as well. But it's so special to have you here and you, in fact, have a long history with BCNA as well as being on, a, on our board before you took on this role as CEO of Cancer Australia. Yes, I was very lucky and thoroughly enjoyed my t- time working with you guys at BCNA. I think you do fabulous work and obviously work that can be translated and teach other advocacy groups around the country in other cancer areas how to best look after their patient community. So sorry I had to leave, but um, <laughs> great experience. You're still on our team. So it's been a, it's been a tough year for um, everyone, hasn't it, from the patients through to the clinicians through to the hospital systems and, in fact, the government as well. Do you want to talk through us what you see as the situation right now um, in Australia, talking December 2020 and the impact that COVID has had on us? Certainly, um, KP. It was a, a completely unexpected year. Of course, we've always known that a pandemic was just one event away. Um, And we've also always known, you know, we studied at medical school what happened in pandemics and how they had waves and they came and went. But it was still a a huge shock when it actually happened. And of course, because there hasn't been such a huge pandemic for so many decades, um, it really tested all of our preparedness and systems and um, treatments for cancer have changed so much over the years that you couldn't possibly know exactly what to expect. So here we are in December 2020 um, in Australia, uh, probably the safest place to be in the world uh, with virtually no COVID at all. Um, Community transmission has been suppressed and the only uh, COVID cases are those coming in from overseas, repatriation of um, Australians who've been stranded overseas so of course um, you know there will be some cases but we are the envy of the world however 
there have been major changes to cancer treatment during the year because of the pandemic. Right back at the beginning, I'm sure you remember we had those discussions about whether or not it would be sensible to pause cancer screening. Um, in the end, it was decided no, that it wouldn't be necessary. And I think that's right. But of course, um, some screening, uh, some breast screening programs did close due to the um, issues with um, physical distancing. Note, I say that, not social distancing. Um, masks and, and hand washing, etc. And so there has been a a drop-off in diagnoses of breast cancer um, from that and from other uh, reasons. And then, of course, there are the issues of, of what happens if people don't present with symptoms uh, and if cancers don't get diagnosed, what the impacts of that are. And then there are the issues of how you care for people um, with cancer during a pandemic, how you make sure that all the service, the wraparound services happen. Um, so it's been an enormous challenge, but of course, one that Australia has risen to and one that actually has led to some um perversely wonderful outcomes and there and there has been many silver linings and I think when you reflect back we need to remember those but before we kind of go into that area Cancer Australia has done a number of reports one looking at what changes of care did happen during COVID-19 but also helping us to prepare for the new COVID normal but I, I think what's your personal opinion of what surprised you the most do you think? Well, that's a good question. I suspect what surprised me the most was when we got those fabulous new MBS item numbers for telehealth. And, you know, at the beginning, as the department is very fond of saying, you know, 10 years of, of um, implementation was done in about 10 days and we got um, telehealth uh, MBS item numbers in there, which means that people can... Um, be paid for doing telehealth, which which needs to happen. The thing that surprised me about it was how little of it is actually done in video. So, you know, I think of now, this is a new thing for me, thinking about communication in, in dimensions. You know, one dimension is phone, two dimensions is video conferencing, but three dimensions is the face-to-face -face genuine um, consultation. And obviously telehealth is vitally important and we're all delighted that the item numbers are continuing um, permanently, uh, but we really need to get the numbers of video consultations up because uh, when Cancer Australia analysed the uh, data the, um, for the billing, it would seem that 98% was phone only. And of course, the reason is complicated. You know, people say not everyone can use video and that's true. But what also happened was not every hospital had video cameras on their computer screens. So... All sorts of things have to be fixed to make it work properly. Yeah, the system challenges then come into place. You've kind of got the people element gets dealt with, but the, the systems and the processes then become the, the real challenge. And, I, you know, I was obviously very proud that BCNA could play a role in highlighting some of those telehealth challenges pretty early on, given that we did the COVID-19 survey of 2,000, more than 2,000 women and men who'd been diagnosed during that time. And, you know, clearly our data showed exactly the same as once we looked into the MBS data or Cancer Australia did. It really um, played, we were able to show what the personal impact is and that data really demonstrated to the system the challenges that we still have ahead around telehealth. And I love that concept of 
three-dimensional and you know how do we make sure that we can embrace this telehealth in a way that's right for the patient you know making sure that we're not going back to the very reason why BCNA began where Lynn Swinburne was told she had breast cancer over the phone so we've got to we've got to do better about that so what do we do to make sure that we are doing better well, I think actually you've, you've raised a really interesting point. What BCNA did was the same in some ways as what Cancer Australia did. We, we stopped at the beginning and said, where can we add value? What can we do that nobody else can do? Because everybody was obviously extremely busy, working really hard, trying desperately to make sure the system was ready and that people were safe. And so you and Cancer Australia separately looked at where we could operate and you can operate in the consumer um, questioning and in communication area, and we can operate in the national what does whole of system look like as opposed to individual jurisdiction or individual clinic. And, of course, those things come together to say what we're trying to do is improve outcomes. So I think actually we've all been strengthened by the way we've had to work this year um, and I think one of the really things that the really important things here is this issue that you've got to make sure you're asking the question of the right person so so when you ask um, clinical staff what do they think about telehealth and what do they think about um, multi you know telehealth multidisciplinary clinics everyone says oh yes they're, they're fabulous they're really you know we don't have to travel yeah but what are they actually like for the patient so you've got to bring those two perspectives in together and you get these unexpected sometimes unexpected insights into into what's going on some people actually really like having a video conference or even a telephone call but not the first conversation and not the breaking bad news conversation. I think it comes back to all of the sort of M health or E health um, cancer care where all of, a lot of the supportive stuff can be done. You know, let's use computers, let's use AI, let's use any technique we can to speed up the bits that can be done by a computer or AI to leave room for the caring the, the, the face-to-face, hand-on-shoulder caring that only a physical person can do. I, I couldn't agree more and I think that really came through through the um, survey that we did and just the very simple things like making sure someone's with that person when you have those more difficult conversations. And I think there's still real challenges in the system around clinicians um, being allowed to bring in, have a person that they're about to diagnose with breast cancer, bring in a support person. I mean, you know, some of those fundamental, almost we've taken them um, as a right were taken away from us during COVID-19. So we've got to make sure that we have a system that allows people that supportive care to be the absolute focus. You're absolutely right. And I think we also have to think carefully about what changes are evidence-based and what changes are reactionary and how to gather the evidence to counteract the reactionary changes. And I think the one about having a support person there is really important. Yes, it was very important that we not spread the infection, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have, you know, if you weigh up the, the risks and benefits of having a loved one there while you're having the bad news broken, I suspect you could 
demonstrate that the benefit of having somebody there would be greater than the uh, reduction in infection of not having the person there. Mm. And particularly, yeah. Sorry, just particularly in a country like this where the infection level has been so low. That's right. And I remember so clearly, in fact, it was March 12 when we were sent a document um, of preparation of the worst case scenario where we were deciding who could go to hospital and who could not. And it was so confronting, but actually having those conversations very early on, I think, helped us to respond better to make sure we really were prioritising the people that needed us the most. But they were very confronting conversations that we were having in March. And thank goodness, you know, as a system and as a country, we haven't needed to make some of the decisions our European friends are making, which is literally sending people home without treatment. Yes, I think I think what, the thing that we have to be eternally grateful for is that we didn't over, overwhelm our health system or come anywhere close to overwhelming our health system. That doesn't mean we didn't put a huge amount of stress on it, and I think that comes back to the issue you mentioned before about looking after our staff. You know, there is a huge amount of stress and anxiety just from having to work in this heightened attention area where you have to dress more carefully for work make sure you put all your protective equipment on in the right order and that you don't you know touch any of the wrong things that just adds stress to your daily job Um, so we do need to make sure once we're through the sort of acute phases that we actually look after everybody in the chronic phases to make sure you know people don't don't start falling over yeah, I know. And I think that that is something we all need to focus on in this summer period is about um, the people who are in the healthcare system getting looked after themselves so that if there is more to come, that then we can respond again because there's no way we can continue to work at the pace that everyone has been since March. It's, um, that's absolutely true. Uh, we've, we've touched on a bit of the silver linings. Um Anyone who follows me at all understands how important radiotherapy is to me um, on many fronts, but hyperfractionation is one of those silver linings that we were able to talk about very early on where we saw, once again, something that was taking the system a very long time to respond to the latest in evidence for those particular women and men who'd been diagnosed that they could have less radiation um, actually happened quickly. How do we hold on to those silver linings when we come out the other end? How do we make sure that continues? It's it's a very big challenge for us, I think. Yes, I think I think it is a challenge for us. Um, you know, they say in the sort of change management literature, they talk about sort of unlocking you from one position, moving you to a new normal, and locking you down in that new normal. And so we have to make sure that we've locked radiation oncology down in the new normal where when the evidence shows that it's safe to do so and beneficial to do so we should use hyperfractionation and that's increasingly um, so for for many um, cancers. I, I think one of the problems we have is um, and it's not it's not um, sort of isolated to radiation oncology but we do have some perverse financial incentives in this country where um, and it's not, it's not the practitioner's fault that this has happened. This is just the way the system has grown up, that, that radiation oncology is paid per fraction of 
uh, treatment given, but all the sort of intellectual grunt of the course of treatment comes at the beginning and isn't paid separately. So that it may be that we need to look at how we fund radiotherapy, and maybe, um, and you know, and I'm not, I don't hold the policy levers here, and I'm not in charge of this in any way, shape, or form, and I'm not criticising anybody who who is in, working in this area. But how about if we uh, had a payment for planning, so mm-hmm. front loaded the payments, so that it wouldn't need to to you know, uh, to recover the costs of treating somebody, you wouldn't need to give lots of fractions, you know, so that the, the bulk, so that, so that it was paid for the work that was required to actually deliver the treatment. And so I think there are those sorts of things that we need to think about. Um, and ultimately, you know, we should give the best treatment that has the least impact on the patient's life, which means, you know, once per dosing, once per cycle dosing of drugs and, um, as few radiation fractions as you possibly can. Uh, and I think that's probably true of quite a number of areas which we should always use a crisis for improving outcomes. There's no question about that. But it also seems to me that this is the time for us to really think through the shared care model with GPs and um, fund that appropriately too so that we can um, really implement something that all of us understand and know that a GP is very important in the holistic life of someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, how do we make some of those changes to to the shared care model as well where it's going to actually financially um, reward better supportive care for for our patients at, at a more local level? I, I think this it is exactly right. It's another one of those areas where the evidence has been accumulating that a patient or a, a person who's had breast cancer doesn't need to stay under the care of a specialist exclusively for the rest of their lives and you know we know from research that that women prefer to have um, some sort of a mixture of care and we know that we should be using uh, one of my favorite terms is people should be operating at the top of their license so to a certain extent it's not just GPs and primary health care physicians it's nurse practitioners as well mm-hmm. if there is somebody who has the skill and competency to care for a patient who's had breast cancer and to know what the triggers are for a re-referral of that patient, a rapid access re-referral to to the specialist, then we should be encouraging that. Now, of course, the problem with COVID-19 is that actually the GPs were quite busy. And so so while we didn't want people going to the hospital, nor did we want the GPs overwhelmed suddenly with an increase in workload that they hadn't actually been prepared for or properly educated around. And so you have to take that balance somehow between, um, you know, the delight of people suddenly saying, well, we don't let anyone come to the hospital, let everybody have shared care, uh, to the poor GPs being overwhelmed by that influx of patients. So there, there has to be, you know, a, a staged and appropriate way forward. But it, it has given us a boost in our efforts to try and get that to happen. So so what is the next step to get us, not just from the enthusiasm and the boost, but into the actual implementation of what I think will probably be a new look optimal care if they're, you know, once we, once we, we already know what best treatment looks like, but maybe it is looking at it in a slightly different way to when we have before COVID. But what do we do to actually bring this to life? Well, I think there's a, 
there are a couple of things that we can do. One of them is um, invest more in implementation and look at either, I mean, I'm always a bit reluctant about pilots because they can tend to put things off, but, you know, staged implementation, demonstration projects, uh, using technology better. I mean, I think the the um, explosion in IT solutions is actually our friend in this case, so, so that we can, you know, let's make shared care digital uh, rather than just paper-based. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, and also these, I think, preconceived ideas about the demographics of people who can use technology has also been really challenged. And I think when we launched the My Journey online tool, um, which was, of course, supported by Cancer Australia, that everyone challenged us that the older demographic were never going to get online. But in fact, I think our oldest um member on the online tool is 92 and you know we our online tool demonstrates that people of every age are happy and in fact prefer to get online to receive their information because they know it's more up to date they can watch videos they can read if they want you know it interacts with them very differently and I think what COVID 19s done along with our work around the my journey online tool is to demonstrate that actually don't have preconceived ideas with who and what uses technology to communicate or make you know to build their information support bcna's online network is an active peer-to-peer support community where people affected by breast cancer can find information and connect with others who understand what you're going through Read posts, write your own, ask a question, start a discussion and support others. The online network is available for you at every stage of your breast cancer journey, as well as your family, partner and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. I did want to um, just touch on briefly how impressive the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island communities responded to COVID. Have you had time to reflect on what we might be able to learn from their absolute protection of community, not just in remote areas, but also in metropolitan and, um, and you know, semi-regional areas, how well they have done to protect themselves against COVID and what we might be able to take from that into the cancer space? Yes, that's a, that's a really impressive and interesting um, issue, isn't it? So for four decades, the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have been saying that they should be in charge of their own health care. And in 2020, they have demonstrated why, uh, because it does actually make a difference. And so I think it it's a wake-up call to all of us that uh, maybe we weren't listening as much as we should listen and that... Um, we shouldn't do anything to a community. We should only ever do it with a community. Um, I think the the idea of co-design, um, and I know that sometimes we all think, oh gosh, it takes longer when you when you do that. 
but if it, if the outcome's better, then maybe it needs to take longer. Um, and we need to listen to that multitude of voices and, and to listen to how they um, looked after their own healthcare so well during the pandemic. So, yeah, I'm, a, I'm actually slightly in awe of what happened there and would like to make sure that um, I learn as much as possible from it uh, so that I can use it to benefit the uh, people with cancer to make sure whatever we do is is properly in partnership. Now, one of the things I'm very grateful for is that our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, or in fact First Peoples, because that's what they want to be referred to um, here within Breast Cancer Network Australia, are all leaders in their own community and have been so busy looking after their communities around COVID that um, now they're coming back to us with an incredible learnings about how we can implement that change and I'm really excited about the work we're going to be able to do do with them in um in 21. Uh, I I think the what does you know we talk about optimal care pathways and probably it's best known in breast cancer more so than any of the other cancer groups because our health professionals have been involved for so long in that development of the optimal care pathway in encouraging and involving consumers very early on but I mean, if we if we think about what it's going to look like, what do you think will be the biggest changes to to the, if we reflect back and say, you know, and in ten years looking forward, what do you think will be the biggest changes and lessons we've learned about what is optimal care now? Well, I think that the optimal care pathways are absolutely vital as the basis from which everything else progresses. So, you know. I think you're right, the, the breast cancer one's best known, but I think our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander optimal care pathway is is really groundbreaking because it it's not one tumour specific, it's a group of people specific, which I think is very important in this situation. And now with every other piece of work that Cancer Australia is doing, we're basing the work around the optimal care pathway. So, so for example, at the moment, we're making a, a roadmap for what we need to do in pancreatic cancer uh, because pancreatic cancer outcomes are so poor. And we're saying, well, let's start with the optimal care pathway. If we just did all of the things that we know we need to do on this pathway, joined up all the care and linked it in with the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, optimal care pathway, we would definitely improve outcomes just by doing that because we know it's not happening across the country and there are, you know, gaps between bits of care and, you know, blocks in the road, etc. So I think they're a fabulous tool for holding systems to account. If a consumer and a clinician can say to each other and to the health system, this is what we should be able to provide or receive and we can't in this area because of whatever reason, then that holds people to account. And it's slowly, slowly beginning to have an impact. These things are very hard to implement, like anything. Um, But I think that the fact they're there gives us this strength. If we all agree with each other, we're very hard to... um, uh, overrule, you know. So if everyone is saying, but I need to be able to provide this level of care because this is what the patients need, then 10 years' time, I would hope that every patient is being treated on a care, on an optimal care pathway and that all of the things that we've learned from COVID-19 are actually in place in terms of 
hypofractionated radiotherapy in terms of optimizing telemedicine. You know, because telemedicine, after all, just coming back to that, was brought in because our rural and remote patients couldn't always see their doctor face to face. So we need to not lose sight of the really important bit. We just need to make it better. Um, so I think that there'll be, I think there will be benefits from COVID in the cancer arena once we get over this unfortunate um, drop in diagnoses that that we're going to that we have seen and that is going to have implications in the next year or so. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I have loved is that cancer registries have been able to put out their data much faster than normally, um, which has allowed us to be able to see across the country, the drop in diagnosis. You know, Victoria clearly had the largest with the longest stint in a lockdown. Um, what what do you see um, is the impact that that drop in diagnosis? I mean, I think you and I both were uh, doing the rounds in the media saying that COVID had not cured cancer. So what is the impacts that we now need to plan for in that drop of um, the diagnosis of breast cancer? So um, actually, of course, it's not just breast cancer. We've now seen the drop in the top, well, in five important cancers. So we've seen it in breast cancer, lung cancer, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer. Um, They've all had a drop but some worse than others and some have recovered better than others and, of course, Victoria's had a slower recovery um, than the other states due to the second wave. So so what is going to happen is that those cancers that were not diagnosed this year and I think we're probably looking at maybe seven or 8,000 cancers across the country. I'm just extrapolating there. Don't hold me to that figure. Um, <laughs> you know I hold you to everything. I know somebody might. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that we know that there have been this number missed. I'm just saying that we are down. Um, and, we, and there was a paper that I'm sure you saw from the British Medical Journal that showed that every four-week delay in breast cancer um, diagnosis equals something like... 10 extra deaths per thousand or something like that yes yeah so I may have got that slightly wrong but the principle is the longer the delay the worse the outcome and of course in Australia we don't usually have those delays those delays are evident in countries that don't have such good health systems as ours and I would reiterate that Australia has probably the best healthcare system in the world as we've just demonstrated through the pandemic and we have the best cancer outcomes in the world. So, you know, we're talking from a position of great um, positivity, but there will be some cancers that will have been missed this year and they will present next year or the year after. Uh, And when they present next year or the year after, they will need more intense treatment than they would have done had they been picked up this year. Uh, the outcomes, um, survival rates may show a little bit of a dip. Uh, We will be working as hard as we can to uh, ensure that the the outcomes are optimised. But that does mean pressure on the workforce. It means pressure on the physicians who make the diagnoses. It's pressure on the surgeons, radiotherapists and oncologists who treat the cancers. And this is a point where we really need to 
Um, we're not going to suddenly be able to bolster their numbers because it takes a long time to train these people. But what we can do is put in supports underneath them to enable them to act at the top of their licence by having the nurse practitioners, the nurses, everybody, the admin people all working to the top of their licences to support the treatment of these people. Otherwise, uh, we're going to have trouble. And, and certainly we are already seeing, I mean, our, our survey indicated the anxiety levels from patients increased during COVID. And now already through the helpline, we know that the guilt that is associated with seeing a lump, feeling a lump, seeing a change, feeling a change and doing nothing during the pandemic and then being diagnosed later is going to add enormous um, burden to the woman or the man who's been diagnosed. So I, I think that it really does go to that discussion before around optimal care and making sure it's not just about a treatment transaction but also about the supportive care elements because if we're already dealing with increased anxiety in the community, whether they had cancer or not, added to that where their life is turned upside down, added to that the burden of guilt, um, particularly for those women or men who may have progressed to have metastatic disease, you know, what What are some of the things we need to be doing now to prepare for that, do you think? Well, I think the first thing is that there should be no guilt in having cancer. Uh, there should be no victim blaming and there should be no stigmatisation of people. The, the reasons that people didn't, you know, present are not of their own making. So this is, you know, we, and, we, and I think sometimes we need to say that to people. You know, do not blame yourself for this. This is out of your control. The, the health system was under crisis and, you know, you were getting messages that, that were not necessarily saying, come on down. It was quite mm. hard to get in to see somebody face-to-face um, during, COVID, during the sort of the waves of COVID. So, so I think, you know, we need to make sure that the, that the mental health as well as the physical health of all of our patients is, is looked after, which, which again means we have to look after the staff in order to look after the patients properly. So there is that balance. Um, I think it, it's going to take the health system quite a long time to rebalance after COVID. Um, and even though we're not in as bad a state as you know so many other countries in the world, that doesn't mean nothing happened here. You know, we still have to recognise that there was a big, a big crisis here too. Yeah, I mean, you know, another very important advocacy piece for BCNA has always been reconstruction. Mm-hmm. The greatest fear we have as an organisation who represents those people who've been diagnosed is that we see long wait times again in the public system. What can we start to do now to help mitigate that? Because my greatest fear is if you look um, at at – we know waiting times have blown out, but they're actually – we're no longer competing just um, for surgery time. We're now competing against knee reconstructions, hip replacements – how, how do we make sure that the system understands the critical role reconstruction plays in helping a woman return um, to a new normal for herself or not return but find a new normal um, 
within what is going to be a very um, competitive financial healthcare system? Yes, I think that's a really good question. So, so of course, cancer isn't the only chronic disease that's been impacted by COVID, um, and the recovery will have to take everything into account. But I think, I think what you have to do is, uh, it's all about communication. So, it's messaging, communicating with the powers that be, and and I think it's about not going for black or white, but going for shades of grey. So, for example, I wouldn't be saying all reconstructions must be done ahead of all knees or, you know, we must only do hips and no ankles or whatever it is. I think what we've got to go for is a balanced portfolio. We Universal health coverage is universal across the community, but also of all the things that, that the health system provides. And the justification for them is more than just a physical or more than just a psychological issue. So, so I think what it is that we have to do is weave some sort of um, balance into it. And I think if you had that conversation with a, a CEO of a, a local health network and talked about how, you know, we absolutely understood that a certain number of knees and a certain number of hips and a certain number of ankles needed to be done as well as a certain number of reconstructions and a certain number of other things. I think they would get that um, in terms of what the benefits, the global health benefits are for the person undergoing those treatments. And anyway, you know, if you don't do any reconstructions and you only do orthopaedics, there won't be enough orthopaedic surgeons to do all of that anyway. So you you have to always have that balance and the theatre equipment won't be right and all of those other things. So I think it's buying into the balance is the issue. And I think also really helping to utilise some of those silver linings where we've seen public-private partnerships work so effectively at a time of need that maybe this is another chance for us to look at potential solutions with government to help with, you know, really deal with some of that backlog that is going to be inevitable. I think I think that's true. I think the um, everybody was surprised. I think the public and private health system surprised themselves <laughs> when it happened so seamlessly. So, Dorothy, thank you for your time, and um, may we continue to always hold the systems uh, to account and to make it better for the people tomorrow. As um, and better every day. That's really what we want to do. And I, I want to thank you for your leadership and, as I said, including BCNA always in your work. Thank you very much, KP. This podcast was empowered by Red Energy and we thank Red Energy for their ongoing support of Breast Cancer Network Australia. Our My Journey online tool has a hub of resources about COVID-19, including information on topics such as telehealth, mental health, as well as support relevant to a breast cancer diagnosis. To sign up to access the My Journey online tool, visit myjourney.org.au. If you're a health professional, we'd also encourage you to join up and refer all of your patients to information that's curated and specifically designed for their type of breast cancer. A reminder that if you have any specific concerns about COVID-19 and breast cancer, to speak directly with your health professional. Thanks for being upfront with us.